Tuesday, the 27th of December, 2011. Prime Minister Julia Gillard delivers the world's most tedious Christmas message. A motorists' organisation wants the world to be more predictable, just like it used to be. And Twitter wins the hearts and minds of the world's media, the puppets. This is the 9pm Edict. Hello, happy Christmas seasons, greetings and all that stuff, even though it's a couple of days late. Or if you follow the calendar of retail consumer experience, it's already, what, three months since Christmas started. I'm still Gary and welcome to The Edict and I have a bone to pick with a tweet. A tweet that I saw on Twitter the other day, the 23rd of December. This tweet was stunning. Stupid. Okay, it's probably not the only tweet from last week that was stupid. Maybe three or four others were as well. But this one was really stupid. It's from Shahira Abulalail, I think. That's the pronunciation. I don't know. That may be pronounced wrong. And no, I'm not going to spell it because I've put all this stuff on the website and it's linked and you can just click through, you lazy bastards. Now, all I know about this woman comes from the About page on her blog, which is called Fazerofzagnite. I don't know either. Look, it's on the website, as I said. Just go and look for yourself. The About page says, in its entirety, this... I want to see a free and just Egypt. I will do whatever I can to help in that endeavour, even if it means swimming against the current. Well, I suppose swimming against the current is a bit of a challenge. It's not quite as challenging as having a bullet put through your head by the, you know, police. But, you know, it's a start. All well and good. Can't argue with any of that because freedom and justice are things you just can't argue against. Except, of course, when it comes down to specific situations. Uh, different people then have very different ideas of what uh, freedom and justice means. Uh, for example, when someone is alleged to have shot and killed three children in your neighbourhood, some people believe that justice is giving someone a fair trial. Others reckon justice is seeing him hang. I want to see justice done, shouted by one of the angry villagers, very rarely means I would like to see him get a fair trial. Uh, but I agree. Yes. The tweet in question reads, One thing has become abundantly clear from the global revolution. Capitalism can only be maintained by the use of force. And the word capitalism in there is a hashtag. Don't know what a hashtag is? Well, how about you try and catch up with the 21st century, you loser? Now, there's two other hashtags in the tweet. Tahrir, which is reference to Tahrir Square, the major public town square in downtown Cairo, where all of the demonstrations have been held, and OWS for Occupy Wall Street, the loose confederation of protesters that reckon corporations have too much say in the world and whatever else they reckon to be blamed on somebody else who's richer than they are. Uh, once you get away from Wall Street and the disintegrating US economy, well, things become a little vague. Now, by including those hashtags, Ms. Abuelal intends to inject her soundbite into the global hive mind group consciousness thingy of both those who support the protesters in Egypt and those who support the protesters in random Western cities. And it seems to have worked because it was retweeted 16 times. Now, what shits me about this tweet is that it purports to be making some sort of incisive criticism of capitalism. Uh, well, it also asserts en passant the existence of some sort of global revolution, when in fact there's really only been some uprisings in a few Arab countries and the Occupy movement has caused what to change exactly? All right, still early days yet, and there's nothing wrong with rallying around a flag and a catch cry as such, as long as you don't start believing your own bullshit. And it's clear to me, at least, that Ms. Abulalal does believe her own bullshit. 
capitalism can only be maintained by force, as opposed to which political philosophy is that then? I mean, every political philosophy throughout history, uh, when under dire threat, will eventually resort to force. Sooner or later, it will happen. Does the phrase, defend our way of life, ring any bells? To single out capitalism as somehow unique in this regard demonstrates a vast ignorance of history. Now, this isn't some wonderful observation about capitalism she's made. This just reveals ignorance. If the Occupy movement wants to do anything, it'll have to come up with something better than capitalism is bad, especially given that capitalism is what delivers all the media tools and technology they're using to spread their message in the first place. One of the thrilling parts of working in the news media is that you get told what the news is going to be before it even happens. Journalists get emailed media alerts telling them when the stage media events are going to happen. You then go to the event, record the words and take the pictures and construct the news. Sometimes you're sent material under embargo, which means you get the full speech or the report or whatever it is before it's officially announced or published with the agreement, uh, well at least they assume you've agreed, not to publish the information information before the scheduled time. It's all such a long-standing part of the news media that few people question it. And so it was that 11.38am on Christmas Eve, I was emailed a copy of the Prime Minister's Christmas message. And what a depressing little document it is. Julia Gillard's speeches are pretty shitful at the best of time, but these 257 words... Yes, that's all it was. 257 words were woeful. Let's step through it because I want to do a bit of a compare and contrast here. Every year we work so hard getting ready for Christmas that the day can be over almost before we know it. Translation, Christmas is hectic, isn't it? I know that too. I'm an ordinary person just like you, even though I'm the Prime Minister. I'm relating to you. And then if you are up late at a church service or up early opening presents... It can be one of the sleepiest afternoons of the year. I'm relating to you whether you're a god-botherer or a consumer or an alcoholic, but we won't mention alcohol because I'm the Prime Minister and I'm respectable and I'm relating to you. So it's always worth stopping to take it all in, to enjoy that feeling that it should always be like this. Christmas is fun and don't we all wish it could last forever? I'm relating to you. Well, unless you're in a dysfunctional family or alone or in jail or in an aged care home and you might, well, wish it would end now. But those people don't live in marginal electorates, so who cares? Otherwise, I am relating to you. For me, the most special thing about Christmas is the people I'm with because it's a day we share with the people who are most important to us. Ah, well, that one's a statement of the bleeding obvious, really. I'm still relating to you, except for the fact that Christmas is often about the people you have to be with rather than the people you want to be with because they're family. They're the people you've otherwise avoided all year round, but now you're stuck with them. But hey, let's not bring reality into this. I'm the Prime Minister and I'm relating to you. At Christmas, for at least one day, we can all live the life we'd most like to live, a life of loving kindness for those we care about most. Uh, yeah, well, we've covered all of this already. Christmas lasts forever, family, we care about, blah, blah, blah. Christmas is wonderful, and I'm still relating to you. And this evening, we all know we are not alone, that we all have people to protect and trust, and we all have people who look to us to hope 
and persevere. Well, that's not true for everyone. See above, I've mentioned all this already, but we'll just keep restating this myth about Christmas, won't we, and hope nobody notices. Fuck, is this thing over yet? Bloody, I'm the Prime Minister and I'm relating to you. God. I know I speak for all Australians when I express a particular Christmas wish to all those who have to work today to take care of us. Police and firefighters, ambulance officers and nurses, emergency personnel, all the essential services which keep our cities and towns running. Yeah, compulsory thank you. This is the crap you say if you can't think of anything else to say. And another 21 seconds was filled and nobody's going to be offended there, are they? I mean, who can complain about thanking the nurses? I noticed she didn't thank, uh, for example, the bartenders, the prostitutes, the drug dealers, the loan sharks, the rape crisis counsellors and everyone else who keeps the world running. Oh, no, it's all this kind of uh, lovely emergency services. But, uh, you know, the bland goes on. And, of course, our troops abroad. Everyone who gives up their Christmas Day to make our Christmas Day possible. Thank you for such a generous gift. Yes, thank you to the armed forces. But uh, explain to me again the logic here. How would we not have Christmas if we hadn't occupied Afghanistan? I mean, what would happen? I mean, all over Australia, priests and toy stores would throw up their arms. Oh, we'd like to celebrate Christmas this year. Truly we would. But the Taliban is still in power in Afghanistan. So it's just not possible. Prime Minister, what is this bullshit? To all Australians, wherever you are and whoever you are with, I hope today at your place has been everything you hoped for. Merry Christmas. A generic greeting and it's over. One minute, 40 seconds of nothing. What was in there that relates to 2011 as opposed to any other year? Anything? No. What was in there that relates to Australia as opposed to any other country? Anything? No. What was in there that relates to Julia Gillard as opposed to any other Prime Minister in Australia's history? Anything? No. Actually, there was. There was pointlessness, boredom and a comprehensive inability to engage with the audience. Well, that's 100% rang a PM right there. Thanks, Julia. Why did you fucking bother? Now, compare that with the Queen, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, who admittedly has done this a few times before. In 2007, her theme was also the family. And, as it happens, it was the 50th anniversary of the time she did the first Christmas message that was on television back in 1957. So she started the 2007 message by playing the opening of the 1957 message as it was originally broadcast. Her Majesty the Queen sends a Christmas message to her people throughout the Commonwealth. That it's possible for some of you to see me today is just another example of the speed at which things are changing all around us. Because of these changes, I'm not surprised that many people feel lost and unable to decide what to hold on to and what to discard, how to take advantage of the new life without losing the best of the old. The Queen then bounced straight off that archival clip with an observation that was breathtaking in its simplicity and poignancy. One of the features of growing old is a heightened awareness of change. To remember what happened 50 years ago 
means that it is possible to appreciate what has changed in the meantime. It also makes you aware of what has remained constant. In my experience, the positive value of a happy family is one of the factors of human existence that has not changed. The immediate family of grandparents, parents and children, together with their extended family, is still the core of a thriving community. Note that she's not making some bland statement about families being full of love and joy and Christmas being wonderful, but the realistic observation that good families are interlinked with good communities. It's something to strive for. Then, since the Queen is also the head of the church in the UK, she dug back into history with a, a bit of the Jesus story with her own interpretation. Very modern, I thought. Now today, of course, marks the birth of Jesus Christ. Among other things, it is a reminder that it is the story of a family, but of a family in very distressed circumstances. Mary and Joseph found no room at the inn. They had to make do in a stable, and the newborn Jesus had to be laid in a manger. This was a family which had been shut out. Perhaps it was because of this early experience that throughout his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth reached out and made friends with people whom others ignored or despised. It was in this way that he proclaimed his belief that in the end we are all brothers and sisters in one human family. The Christmas story also draws attention to all those people who are on the edge of society people who feel cut off and disadvantaged, people who for one reason or another are not able to enjoy the full benefits of living in a civilized and law-abiding community. For these people, the modern world can seem a distant and hostile place. It is all too easy to turn a blind eye, to pass by on the other side, and leave it to experts and professionals. And then she remembers that not everyone's a Christian, so she extends a message to be more inclusive. All the great religious teachings of the world press home the message that everyone has a responsibility to care for the vulnerable. Now, I won't play the whole thing. The Queen's Christmas message went for more than seven minutes in 07. It usually goes for that long, but she clearly identifies a theme for the year and gives some guidance. Dare I say it, leadership. Whereas Julia Gillard puts together this crappy little list of platitudes and primary school essay grade stock phrases to create, well, what? One minute, 40 seconds of a waste of space. If there was ever an argument in favour of the monarchy, well, Julia Gillard, you're it. I shan't talk about Tony Abbott's Christmas message, even though the ABC put it on their website with almost equal billing to the Prime Minister's, because, well, this is something the ABC doesn't seem to understand. Tony Abbott isn't even in government, let alone in a position of power. Once he's in power, if he's ever in power, then we can hear his Christmas message. Until then, Tony, shut the fuck up. And the ABC, don't give him airspace. He's not the government. Well, you know you're in the holiday silly season when the lead item on AM, the flagship National Current Affairs radio program, is a whinge about petrol prices. And not even that petrol costs too much, but that it's too hard to figure out when it's cheapest to buy. 
Tuesdays used to be the cheapest day of the week to buy petrol, and motorists knew to fill up before the prices went up again for the rest of the week. But since May, that's changed. The NRMA in New South Wales says that in the past few months, the petrol pricing cycle has become extremely unpredictable. Well, for some time now, the NRMA has been concerned about the volatility of cycles in capital cities like Sydney. Uh, once upon a time, uh, motorists knew that if they pulled into a service station on a Tuesday, for example, that that would be the day that they could get cheap uh, petrol as part of this weekly cycle. However, now for some time, uh, the cycle has shifted on an almost weekly basis. It has become almost impossible for motorists to be able to predict when the best time to buy petrol is, and it wasn't always this way. Ah, didums, Peter. That's Peter Curry, spokesperson for the NRMA. And what a jumped-up organisation that is, the National Roads and Motorists Association, even though it's not national at all, but only in New South Wales. Well, my opinion of the NRMA's position here is simple. If you don't like the fact that petrol prices are unpredictable, there's nothing stopping you from organising your own distribution process for the stuff and setting prices that stay put for, you know, six months or a year at a time. Nothing at all stopping you, Mr Curry. Petrol, like other petroleum products, is a commodity bought and sold on the open market. Now, of course, if predictability is more important than spot pricing, your trade-off is probably going to be higher prices overall. Hedging, I believe it's called. Or maybe not. If you reckon you're better at this buying and selling stuff than the oil companies, go to it, mate. Meanwhile, do you really expect the oil companies to tell you when petrol will be cheaper, that is to tell you how you can reduce their overall revenues? Oh, for fuck's sake, grow up. My attention was drawn earlier today to a story at Lies, Damned Lies and Statistics, which is the name of a website. And if you want to read the story, there's a link on my website. You know there is. That's... uh, what I do every time. Why do I have to keep telling you this? But the story is about this thing called Twitter and how it shaped the 2011 news agenda over Facebook. Now, Facebook is much, 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 much bigger than Twitter. 800 million users compared to 100 million. Uh, More eyeball time, as they say, in minutes per month. Uh, The market valuation of Facebook is around $100 billion compared to Twitter at about $8 billion or so after that Saudi prince bought a 3% stake the other day. But in all but two months of the year, the traditional media, whatever that is, mentioned Twitter in about 50% of their stories about social media. Media, Facebook only 45%. The article reckons this is odd because Facebook has 95% of the time people spend on social media and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, well, he's a celebrity. Mark Zuckerberg is on a new do-it-yourself diet. He's only eating animals he kills himself. So he lives in Silicon Valley. You think that might be kind of hard to do, but apparently it's not. The internet billionaire has already killed a chicken, a goat, and a peg. The article reckons this difference between Facebook and Twitter is because journalists are more interested in Twitter because of the role it has to play in society, Arab Spring, Twitter revolution, blah, blah, blah. It's not just about Twitter's numbers, but their influence, about its ability to spread news. Really? I reckon it's just because journalists are more likely to use Twitter themselves as part of their work, and journalists tend to write about stuff that fits into their world and that they're interested in. I mean, people get arrested by the police for all sorts of dodgy reasons every day, uh, just to shut them up. 
And you never hear about that. But look what happens when a journalist is arrested. It's blanket coverage. I reckon this calls for an edict. This is edict number 16. If you are a journalist, then you shall create for yourself a panel of 10 random citizens. It shall not matter whether they're sophisticated or not, smart or not, that is, dumb, even literate or not, that is, illiterate. They shall be chosen truly at random. And before you start writing any story, you shall describe your story to the members of your panel, and you shall ask them, do you give a flying fuck about any of this? And unless at least two of them do so, that is, answer in the affirmative, just bloody well move on. That's all for the edict for now. Uh, Sound quality and tone. Uh, The sound quality, the slight tankiness of the sound, can be blamed on a rather good dining room table at which I was sitting while recording. The wood surface reflected the sound back into the back of the microphone, creating that slight echo effect. I couldn't be asked fixing it or moving or doing anything else. The tone, well, I'm reliably informed that this particular episode of the edict uh, is less cranky, less angry, less filled with rage than some others. So to make up for that, here is your quota. Fuck, 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 cunt, bottom, cunt, fuck, cunt, bottom. If you'd like to leave a comment on the episode, go to the website. If you'd like to leave an audio comment to include on the next episode, Skype to Stilgary on our phone, Sydney, plus 61280113733. The next edict will be, whenever I bloody will, get around to it, because this is the 9pm edict.